0: Long History's Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. Number 13, William Cavendish Bentinck. The man who was in office when the final treaty was signed for the end of the American Revolutionary War and a final admission by the British that the United States were independent. He was in office twice, from the 2nd of April 1783 to the 18th of December 1783. Then he was back again on the 31st of March 1807 to the 4th of October 1809. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. Welcome! In this episode we've got another of those aristocratic early Prime Ministers. This one being a particular curio because he holds the record for the biggest gap between two times in office. We'll explain that in more detail in this episode here on Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. We literally pick a Prime Minister at random and then ask a few questions. We ask what was he like, what was the historical background at the time and how did this Prime Minister get into office and eventually leave office. We've covered many Prime Ministers now so have a look round on your podcast provider or all the episodes are available together on longhistory.net, our website. And don't forget to subscribe or follow Long History to be informed when further episodes are released. So let's get started with random UK Prime Minister of the Week number 13, William Cavendish Bentinck, who was in office in 1783 and between 1807 and 1809. Cavendish Bentinck, the Duke of Portland being his formal title, is not what comes to mind when you think of an ideal leader of a country. He was apparently quite a shy and nervous man who particularly disliked speaking in public. That's not exactly an outstanding qualification for the top job. So he seems to have been another of those early Prime Ministers who just kind of ended up being Prime Minister because he was mild-mannered enough for the King to approve of him and well-connected enough to be seen to be the right sort of chap to be in charge. Nevertheless, Cavendish Benting was a bit more committed than some of these aristocratic times. He was quite a committed political operator and worked at the upper echelons of politics during his whole working life, right until his death at the age of 71. He married Dorothy Cavendish in 1766 at the age of 28. It's an age of close connections. She was herself the daughter of another Duke and another Prime Minister, William Cavendish, the 4th Duke of Devonshire. This was one of the most aristocratic and famous families in the country and together they had six children. What was the historical background? Cavendish-Bentick's first time as prime minister although only very brief coincided with one significant moment in well world history the very end of the American Revolutionary War. Now of course the war had already ended this was the final signing of the treaty defining British and American borders in North America. His first time in office lasted just over eight months but he returned to the job over 20 years later for another two and a half years and during those intervening decades lots had happened not least the French Revolution which led to the French Revolutionary Wars followed by the Napoleonic Wars and cavendish Bentinck returned to the top job in the midst of the latter the United Kingdom at the time. The UK itself underwent a significant change between cavendish Bentinck's two times in office. Before 1801, the United Kingdom did not include Ireland, but Ireland was included in an act of union which came into practice that year, causing and continuing decades of controversy. The first census in the UK took place in that year, 1801, so for the first time we can more or less accurately say that at the beginning of the decade of Cavendish Bentinck's second time in office, the population of Great Britain was 10.5 million people. Throughout the country, this was the era when the Industrial Revolution was just beginning to take off, meaning that there was a big shift taking place in the country. Historically important cities such as Bristol, Norwich, and York were being overtaken and overshadowed by industrial cities, for example, in the northwest of England, such as Manchester and Liverpool and not forgetting the central Scottish cities of Glasgow and Edinburgh, all at the time having populations above 80,000. Even so though, London more than dominated even then, with its population approaching 1 million for the first time in 1801. The United States at the time. The United States were playing a key role in the United Kingdom's history. The 13 colonies declared their independence in 1776 of course but the official signing of the Treaty of Paris that would agree to that independence took place on the 3rd of September 1783. So this means that in this new country there were still a few things to sort out. George Washington for example wouldn't become the first president until six years later in 1789. Vermont at that time was a de facto independent country not being part of the 13 colonies who declared their independence from Britain. We've found one population statistic that says that approximately 2.5 million people are said to have resided in the 13 colonies at this point. Who could vote at that time? Well, if you've listened to any of Long History's random UK Prime Ministers of the Week, about other Prime Ministers from before 1832, any of them really, You'll know that Britain at that time was in a sort of proto-democracy. Aristocrats and the landed gentry had a vote, but this amounted to very few people and the system was widely open for manipulation. This also meant that the support of the king was particularly important at that time. Which led to a phenomenon which was quite common in those days and has occasionally cropped up again since, arguably being repeated in the 2010s. This is the phenomenon of very brief tenures in office. Now, before 1832's Great Reform Act, there were many of these short term prime ministers, and two of them in particular stand out because they had two separate short terms each. Now, this is unheard of these days. However, both Charles Watson Wentworth and the prime minister we're talking about today, William Cavendish Benting, particularly stand out because they had two short terms with a big gap in between the Prime Minister we're talking about today, William Cavendish Bentink, was Prime Minister for just over eight months in 1783, returning to the job after 23 years for a further two and a half years. So why have we included these details after asking a question about who could vote? Well we've already mentioned it really, this was before the 1832 Reform Act And it was possibly because of this voting system that such a possibility of Prime Ministers with long stints in between could even happen. It seems to be pretty impossible today. And essentially it's because Prime Ministers were more or less picked out of a hat at the time. And as long as they had the approval of the appropriate people, they could remain in the job. And it's for this reason why these two men in particular could have brief terms with that long gap. Essentially, they were both stopgap men. Good establishment sorts seen as meant to rely on in an emergency at a time of need. Compromise candidates to keep the competing egos in Parliament and the King himself happy. And it seems that as the vote was extended to more people after 1832 and further on, this ability for Prime Ministers to be plucked out of thin air just because their fellow aristocrats decided to give them another shot at the top job just became less possible. So in summary these multi-tenure short-term prime ministers are perhaps the ultimate example of what can happen when the wider general public's approval is not really needed. Although as I say there have been hints of that since the 2010s with the five rotating prime ministers in quick succession. Perhaps a sign of a government that's more interested in internal debates than in improving the country. Perhaps. What was cavendish Bentinck’s background? He was born on the 14th of April 1738, and he is in fact the great-great-great-great-grandfather of the current King Charles III. Not precisely sure on the number of greats there. The link is actually through Queen Elizabeth's mother, who was for many years known as the Queen Mother. Like many an aristocrat, he was not short on titles, being a baron, a viscount, a Marquis, an earl and a duke. He is actually more famously known as the Duke of Portland. He had an unsurprisingly establishment education, which was also fairly typical for a Prime Minister, being educated at Westminster School, followed by Oxford University. He was born into a political family, at a time when political parties didn't strictly exist. But there were two broad groupings called the Whigs and the Tories, and Cavendish-Bentings family was very much on the Whig side of politics. After his education, Cavendish Bentinck went on a grand tour of various countries in Europe and then he inherited his dukedom from his father in 1762 at about the age of 24. Just a year earlier, he'd become a Member of Parliament and he was closely linked with that other multi term Prime Minister, Charles Watson Wentworth. It's actually quite strange how these two men's lives ran in parallel with Cavendish Bentinck serving in both of Watson-Wentworth's two brief administrations and working in opposition with Watson-Wentworth between those two tenures. How did Cavendish-Bentink become Prime Minister? So we've just mentioned the parallels between William cavendish Benting and Charles Watson-Wentworth. The latter was born in 1730 but died at only 52 years of age in 1782. And this was what cut short his second term as Prime Minister. The Prime Minister we're looking at today, however, was only eight years younger than Watson Wentworth and it was with the latter's death that caused the King to look for a quick replacement. Ah, but it wasn't Cavendish-Benting. Instead, he went for a William Petty who was in the job for around eight months. At a key moment when negotiations were underway regarding British admission of defeat during the American Revolutionary War, This was a rather unbalanced time, because Frederick North had been in charge as Prime Minister for 12 years. He engineered himself out of the job, leaving a space in the top spot, which caused a whole series of realignments in politics at the time. William Petty's premiership and his government soon fell apart, leading the King to look for a safe pair of hands. And this is where William Cavendish Benton came along. He was brought in as a moderating force, enabling a stable government to be formed. Although at this point it's worth mentioning another factor about politics in those days, in that the role of Prime Minister wasn't quite so clear in those days. And it is said that although cavendish Bentinck had the sufficient titles that we can call him Prime Minister, the government was actually run in a coalition between the ex-Prime Minister Frederick North and another of the major politicians of the time, Charles Fox. What was Cavendish Bentinck's biggest achievement as Prime Minister? Well, we've already mentioned it, Cavendish Bentinck was in office when the signing of the Peace of Paris took place. This set of agreements would finally, officially, bring the American Revolutionary War to an end. Why did Cavendish Bentinck stop being Prime Minister? Apparently, for that first stint in the top job, Cavendish Bentinck had not been King George III's first choice as Prime Minister and so he was not happy with this particular government. This came to a head particularly when a bill was pushed through, the result of which would have been a weakening of the king's power and an increase in parliament's power. It was called the India Bill. The king made it clear that he would not be at all happy with anyone who supported this bill, and this controversy led to cavendish Bentinck's government being removed from office altogether, to be replaced in this case by William Pitt the Younger, who was able to give the country the stable leadership that it needed. Now that's often the end of the Prime Minister's career, but of course in this case we have a second act. Some of these aristocrats disappear into obscurity almost instantly, seemingly having decided that they didn't really like the job anyway. But Cavendish-Benting hung around in opposition, taking over a role pioneered by Watson-Wentworth, his double barreled predecessor. He continued in opposition when the notion of an official opposition was not quite defined yet and during these gap years shall we say war broke out with France and there were various existential political debates in Europe. cavendish Bentinck and his grouping of opposition politicians agreed to return to government under Pitt the Younger in 1794 and appears to have been a good right-hand man to this Prime Minister under whom he served as Home Secretary. This means that he was instrumental in pushing through that act of union that would officially, at least in Great Britain's eyes, unite Great Britain and Ireland. Pitt the Younger is one of the longest-serving Prime Ministers. He was in the job for an extraordinary 17 years at the end of the 1700s. But his popularity waned with the years, and early in 1801 he resigned. And this led to another of those periods of instability in the top job. During this type of period, it seems that there was a certain amount of clawing around, trying out various aristocrats in the top job, or resorting to some well-connected person if they didn't have the right blue blood. We had Henry Addington, who was in the job for three years, but wasn't seen to be a good enough war leader. Pitt the younger returned to help deal with that pesky tyrant Napoleon. However, he died in office and the search continued for another safe pair of hands. William Grenville was also given a shot, but he was forced to resign over controversies regarding the Irish. So they searched around for another aristocratic type. Who better than the proven stalwart, already ex-Prime Minister, William Cavendish-Benting. His time had come again. How did Cavendish-Benting stop being Prime Minister the second time? So now the Napoleonic Wars were in full swing. cavendish Benting, however, was much older and his second administration was plagued with disloyalty and intrigue. The Foreign Secretary, George Canning, who would also be a future Prime Minister, was particularly at odds with Viscount Castlereagh, the War and Colonies Secretary. This absurd dispute led to a duel, during which one man injured the other. Although both men survived this scandalous episode... They both resigned as a result, weakening the government, which, being seen to be slightly out of control, led to Cavendish Bentinck's resignation. This was not least because the man himself had reached his 70s and wasn't very well, and in fact, he died only a month after resigning. Why should we remember William Cavendish Bentinck? Well, he isn't the only Prime Minister to have suffered ill health while in office. Nor is he the only one whose death can convincingly be linked to the pressures of the job. Of course he's one of the less famous Prime Ministers, but potentially he could make his appearance as a trick question if someone asked which Prime Minister was in office when the treaty acknowledging the loss of the 13 colonies was signed. Many would say that Frederick North was the man who lost the colonies, but in fact it was Cavendish Bentinck who was in office at this time. He didn't himself sign the treaty, but he was there in office. He seems to have been one of history's more diplomatic Prime Ministers. Many, many men ended up being Prime Minister during those years, having some appropriate aristocratic qualities for the establishment to deem it appropriate to give them a try. But it does say something in itself that having been given one shot, like Watson Wentworth, he stayed around and it can only be seen as an achievement that he was given a second chance at the job. He must have been doing something right. And although it's not the greatest reason for getting the top job and during his second administration it seems that silly infighting between politicians was more important than more serious wars it was ultimately only his own illness and death that led to him leaving the role for the final time. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. This was a strange one, a man with only two brief times in office but nevertheless a long political career in between. So it's particularly difficult to summarise these tumultuous years with French revolutions, Napoleonic wars, one of the country's best or longest serving prime ministers, William Pitt the Younger, and then a quick series of these rotating prime ministers. So at this point, I always say that this is just a starting point for your own research. I hope I've managed to summarise things sufficiently that they're not too confusing and perhaps they whet your appetite to learn more. If you have enjoyed it, please do give this episode a like before you move on and share it with anyone who might be interested. That really would help. But above all, thanks to you for listening. This was Random UK Prime Minister of the Week. Number 13, William cavendish Bentinck Goodbye.